but looks like there's actually some promising results suggesting the possibility of using this kind of form of energy for deep brain neuromodulation. So this is something that we are actually pretty surprised to find this result based on our study. Welcome to The Convergence, the Army's Mad Scientist podcast. I'm Matt Sandisbert of the Mad Scientist team, and I'll be joined in just a moment by Rachel Melling. Mad Scientist is a U.S. Army initiative that continually explores the evolution of warfare, challenges assumptions, and collaborates with academia, industry, and government. Follow us on social media at Army Mad Sci, and don't forget to subscribe to the blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil. Today we're talking with Dr. Gusong Hong, Assistant Professor of Materials Science and Engineering at Stanford University. We're talking with Dr. Hong today about neuroengineering, minimally invasive neural interfaces, and controlling brains from a distance. As always, the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the Department of Defense, Department of the Army, Army Futures Command, or Training and Doctrine Command. Let's get started. Dr. Hong, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you for having me. Before we get started with the big questions here, can you kind of introduce yourself to our audience, give them a little bit about your background, the research you're doing, and, and where you are today? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So um, I grew up in China, but uh, I came to the United States to pursue my uh, PhD at Stanford University. So that was about 14 years ago. I started my PhD in chemistry here at Stanford. And uh, it was during this time I um, developed a method using shortwave infrared light to non-invasively observe the rodent brains, effectively bypassing the traditional need for removing the scalp and the skull. So this was done by uh, just looking at the infrared light in the uh, wavelength range between 1.0 and 1.7 microns, a quite uh, useful range of wavelengths that can be uh, leveraged to peek very deep into the mouse brain without having to remove the scalp and the skull. So we're able to actually very clearly realize all the vasculature and also the dynamics of the vessels reflecting the new activity in the mouse brain in an almost completely non-invasive way. My degree was chemistry and a specific subfield of chemistry was physical chemistry. So my passion for integrating the physics and chemistry to understand the neural mechanisms, which was, you know, really uh, quite uh, exciting from this uh, deep brain imaging work, took me to Harvard for postdoctoral training. So during my Harvard years, uh, I was supported by the American Heart Association and also the NIH. So I started development of uh, a slightly different tool, but also from understanding the brain, uh, and is also inspired by some advances in physical chemistry. So I developed this ultra-small and ultra-flexible nano-electronic tools. And these are devices that can be loaded into a syringe and injected into the brain or retina. So unlike uh, these kind of, uh, you know, rigid electronic circuit that you typically see from the CPU or your computer chip, you know, these kind of electronics are really soft, really small. They can be loaded into a syringe. They can be injected out from the syringe into the brain and retina. And this allows us to record and stimulate new activity over a really long period of time in, uh, you know, in both the brain and the retina with a single neural activity. So then after that, I was lucky to actually uh, invite back to Stanford to be a, a faculty here in the material science and engineering department. And uh, I also have joined affiliation with Neuroscience Institute here. So then here at Stanford, my research expanding into the realm of novel materials for uh, some neuroscience applications, especially you know, benefiting from the collaboration with my colleagues here in Neuroscience Institute. So my team and I have been developing, you know, a few different tools. So uh, I think a tool that got you interested is the based on the infrared light, 
but also just wanted to tell you that uh, we also developed some canon mass nanotransducers. These are the nanoparticles that can be injected into the uh, blood circulation to circulate within the bloodstream. And they can actually convert ultrasound, which you may know has pretty deep tissue penetration, into local light emission. So then with this, we are able to have non-invasive optogenetic stimulation based on ultrasound alone. So then ultrasound is completely non-invasive in this, in this way. And then we also uh, developed this uh, deep brain neuromodulation method based on the uh, SWIR, the short wave infrared light. So this was apparently based on my earlier work during the PhD with the imaging, but this time we actually uh, sending in this infrared light through the intact scalpel skull for neuromodulation in a deep region of the brain. And I also wanted to highlight that there is also another ongoing project, especially I, I feel it could be used for, for the military use, which is to leverage the potential of the penetration of radio waves and microwaves for similar deep brain interventions. So I'm, I'm happy to discuss any of this um, specific field if you're interested. Yeah, that, that's great because I have a lot of questions about a lot of what you just said. And so if I understand it correctly, you were able to inject something into, you're using mice at the time, in, inject something into them and then right. use infrared light to manipulate that. What was the goal of it, though? What kind of manipulation are we talking about? What were you able to make the brain do from there? Yeah, so actually, that's a, that's a good question. Our goal, you know, apparently, we were wanting to find a way for neuromodulation without any physical implants or without head tethering. So if you look at the existing landscape of, like, neuromodulation methods, we either have some kind of deep brain stimulation electrodes, which have, have to be implanted all the way into the target of the brain, or we have to insert optical fiber, and that fiber delivers light at the local region for optogenetic neuromodulation. This fiber has to be implanted because light doesn't really penetrate very deep, especially for the visible range. So this actually is evidence in the uh, daily experience. We can't really see through the tissue very well because it's, there is too much scattering. There is too much absorption in by all the molecules into the body. So then we realized that we can actually look at the spectrum of a scattering and absorption. If we go to longer and longer wavelengths, especially staying away from the visible, going into the mean infrared, now we see that scattering generally decays. That's because you know, scattering is usually like mean scattering, relay scattering. They always have this kind of inverse proportional relationship to wavelengths. If we go to longer wavelengths, we're going to get less scattering. But we can't just keep going to longer wavelengths because we're going to hit a wall, and this wall is kind of like a, this huge absorption peak caused by water molecules and all the, all the other biomolecules inside the body. And then if you keep going to the mid IR, you're going to get a lot of results of absorption. So we have to strike a balance in here. And the balance gives us this uh, ideal wavelength, which is exactly at 1064 nanometers. And then this wavelength is actually uh, having the balance of scattering absorption to afford the deepest penetration depth in the tissue. This wavelength is also very beneficial because a lot of the laser modules, this very mature laser technology, such as NDR laser, has this exact wavelength and it also delivers this very pulse dynamic. So then we leverage this kind of laser technology and also this balance of scattering and absorption. We can just shine light from outside of the body. And a lot of the photons at this wavelength can penetrate over even centimeters of the tissue penetration, tissue depths, to our surprise. And then with these photons, what can we do with them? Apparently, if you just directly shine light to the mouse brain tissue at this wavelength, it does nothing because there's no ion channels that respond to, to this wavelength. And then we have to find a way to convert this energy of the photons into some kind of neural activity. We realized that actually, uh, you know, nature has already provided us with something that we can learn from, which is, you know, some animals, for example, rattlesnakes, they can actually sense infrared light 
emitted from their warm-blooded prey, for example, a rat, you know, walking in front of it, and then this rat is warm-blooded, rattlesnake is cold-blooded, and then the black body radiation from this warm-blooded prey will emit this infrared radiation, gets absorbed by the rattlesnake's specialized organ. This organ is called pit organ, looks like the eye, it doesn't really, you know, give you the image, just in a sense is that infrared radiation. And they realize that David Julius at UCSF, actually back about one decade ago, they published a paper elucidating the mechanism of this kind of infrared sensation. It turns out that there's a glucose channel called a trip channel, a TRP channels, transient receptor potential channels that can sense the infrared radiation. So now we realize, okay, well, can we take these ion channels from the rattlesnake and put them in the mouse brain? And now if you shine light, then these ion channels may be activated. But realize that there's actually still an issue, which is how are we going to sensitize these ion channels? Because these ion channels do not necessarily have the infrared absorption. So we have to also make it sensitized to this 1064 nanometer light. So we design another molecule that can have maximum absorption at this wavelength. You can imagine, you can, you can, you can liken this molecule to the, the pigments in our retina, because we can see like different colors because we have different pigments in our, in our retina. So we also design a pigment with absorption at this particular wavelength. So now we have three things. We have the deep tissue penetrating 1064 nanometer infrared light. This gives us a deep tissue penetration. We have the sensitizing molecule that gives us the maximum absorption of this instant light. And lastly, we have viruses encoding these trip channels that make the neurons responsive to the instant light. So now with all the three things, we have a complete system. We can inject the viruses along with this sensitizing molecule into, I say, deep brain region. What we did, which we showed in that paper, uh, was actually we could inject this into the ventral tegmental area, which is called the VTA. The VTA is the area that harbors a lot of dopaminergic neurons, and we know that dopamine is our brain's um, like a reward currency in a way. Right? So because you know if you had a dopamine release, then you know we feel happy. So we do the same thing. We do it actually in the mouse brain. We target this dopaminergic neurons in the VTA, which is pretty deep. Typically, in order to get to this brain region, people have to insert optical fiber, they have inserted probe, they have to do some kind of tethered behavior experiments, which is not great. So now what do we do is we just inject these molecules into that deep region, and now we just we can shine light either from a some kind of fiber coupled laser or even even uh, just a laser pointer. You, you point the laser pointer, you know, with this 1064 nanometer light to an animal that is running in this in this what, what, what do we use the wine maze. And then the mouse can recognize the different ends of the Y maze. If we only shine this light to, let's say, one of the three ends of the Y maze, the mouse can actually recognize, can remember which region that, you know, where it feels happy because of this release of the one from the 1061 on light. So then we demonstrated that it was actually a very robust result. You know, you do it uh, for a lot of different animals, every animal for that behavior. For an animal to recognize and remember which area receives the 1061 on He cannot see it but it feels it. And then this light actually makes it addicted to, you know, it sounds crazy, but it's actually addicted to this infrared light. So this is what we do with this infrared light. So Matt and I, we had been doing some some reading of uh, some of the articles that you put out about your research. And in one of them, it talks about how one of your goals was to use this technique to improve the knowledge of social cognition in humans. Um, right. And so can, can you talk a little bit more about your larger goal and maybe how you can transition it from mice um, and testing it with animals into uh, humans? Yeah, that's actually, you know, that's a good question. That's my uh, kind of long-term vision. You know, uh, when I, I believe that was from one of the articles that uh, the Stanford Neuroscience Institute put, 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 uh, you know, put together based on an interview with me. And uh, during that time, 
you know, I read an article and I, I wrote an AI grant proposal for that. I never got funded, but I'm still interested in that. So I read an article, um, you know, showing that if you induce some kind of correlated new activity in a dorsal media prefrontal cortex, this is called DMPFC, dorsal media prefrontal cortex, which is a very specialized region that, you know, in, in, in mice and also in humans as well, that uh, drives social interaction and all, all kinds of social behavior. And then if you in, induce this kind of correlated neural activity across multiple animals, then if you have the synchrony of the activity driven by some kind of external stimulation, uh, you will be able to observe an increase in social interaction among the group animals. But on the other hand, if you introduce the stimulus in a not correlated way, or if you in, you know intentionally also uh, remove this kind of synchrony in this brain region, and synchrony are doing activity in the brain region across different animals, then we actually found that the animals interact with, with each other less. So now with this knowledge, then we want to ask a question. Now we have this tool that you know light basically travels in free space. You can target multiple animals all simultaneously using you know, multiple beams of light traveling in free space. What they have done in that paper was actually only looking at two animals and both of them had tethered. And you can imagine if it gets to like a large group of animals, with what the head tethering is going to be like all entangled, very hard to differentiate between different animals, very hard to study that system. But now what our vision is that we can actually now try light, right? So beams all come in different directions. The beam can track the animals, the animals' behavior. And then this will allow us to really, you know, influence and study the neural basis uh, of social interactions uh, on the large scale of uh, uh, interacting animals, socially behaving interacting animals in a controlled manner. Well, apparently this technique at this, in this stage could only work in, in, in mice. Uh, and uh, for humans, I think we still have challenges for, for that. Uh, uh, but, uh, you know, it will give us knowledge about, you know, how the, the animals interact with this minimally invasive and non-tethered technology. I want to ask you a little bit about the challenges in doing this in a, in a human trial. Um, yeah. so obviously, I'm, I'm probably going to use some wrong terminology, but as I stated before, it sounds like you have to inject something, a molecule or something into the what you're right. trying to test. So how would that work yeah. on a human? Would you have to physically inject something into them, into them for you to be able to manipulate this? Exactly. That's actually, you know, the challenge is, you know, very hard to overcome at this, at this stage for human applications. One thing, you know, there are actually at least two challenges I can think of. The first challenge is that how are you going to take this rattlesnake iron channels and put that into the human brain, right? So typically from Rodent experiments, you know, there is actually a lot of genetic tools that are optimized and designed for rodent research. So now transducing human neurons is actually a different story. It's an untrivial task, especially considering the human neurobiology and also the human immune system. If you're going to des design the AVs and inject them to human brain, first of all, that's actually invasive. And second, uh, that AVs may actually trigger some immune response to the human body. And then that's going to actually cause a lot of uh, adequacy effects. So. Plus, in the, you know, just getting approval from the FDA on using this for, for human application is going to be a big, big uh, barrier. And on the other hand, I also envision that, uh, you know, there's going to be a challenge for using just the 1064 nanometer infrared light for the human brains, because the human brain is much larger than in the mouse brain. The mouse brain, you know, the biggest I've seen is probably like seven to eight millimeters in the total depth. And then based on the calculation of the kind of measurement as well, of the penetration depths of uh, this particular wavelength of the infrared light, you know, penetrating through six, seven to eight millimeters isn't very hard with this wavelength. But when we're talking about human 
we're talking about the same region that how uh, you know contains all these um, dopaminergic neurons. We're talking about over 10 centimeters. That's actually more than world of magnitude in depth. So that's going to be very, very challenging if you're going to use the same wavelengths to get to that, that, that depth. So that's why, you know, there could be some alternatives to, you know, what we have done in human, uh, in the in mice. And then, uh, while you're working on this, you know, trying to understand how we can actually concentrate microwaves as well as the radio frequency, the radio waves in the particular region of the brain. Given that this forms of energy can penetrate over centimeters, tens of centimeters of the tissue, we wanted to leverage this kind of deep penetration for neuromodulation in the deep, deep brain. That research is still ongoing, but it looks like there's actually some promising results suggesting the possibility of using this kind of form of energy for deep uh, brain neuromodulation as well. Uh, in particular, this will be leveraging this kind of rich knowledge and, uh, you know, mature uh, skills and expertise of uh, all these, uh, you know, the radars and all the other, you know, radio wave communication tools that, you know, very mature in the past couple of decades. So we can just leverage these technologies and now point that to the, to the your tissue and see what kind of responses we're going to get. And then with that, I can imagine the second barrier is going to be removed, right? So because now we can go much deeper than the infrared light. This is really going to be great. But what about the first one? Um, well, apparently we don't want to use the viruses, right? We don't want to use the viruses. So now we're leveraging some kind of mechanisms that will induce the changes. For example, in the, you know, each, each neuron has a membrane. The membrane has a capacitance and the capacitance, you know, can be quickly, can be driven by false the energy of this microwave radio frequency. And such that, you know, the capacitance we're going to have very small change over a very short period of time. That is enough to cause some current to go across the membrane to depolarize or hyperpolarize the neurons. So that's something we're actually particularly interested in. You know, this does not require any transduction of neurons with viruses, but it will have the effect for a particular part of region with this deep uh, penetrating forms of energy. So earlier you had mentioned, um, you know, a potential for leveraging this technique with um, military use. And we right. just talked about transferring this capability to to humans potentially, you know, in the future um, and what that could be used for. So can you elaborate a little bit more on um, or if you've thought about how this could be used in DOD or in military? Right. One thing I can I can think of is uh, what I'm thinking along this line is that we could use this technology in in two different ways. So one of them is to, for the uh, augmentation of the uh, uh, disability. So this could actually allow soldiers to have you know infrared vision or sensitivity to to radio wave and then to you know basically augment their ability to you know navigate in a very complicated field. This is one thing we, we can potentially do because basically the idea would be very similar. So taking this form of energy and then have that coupled to a particular region of the auditory, or not the auditory necessarily, but it's just the sensory cortex, somatosensory cortex, and then produce some kind of a non-invasive activation in there and have this just kind of wired up into the native, uh, you know, sensory uh, pathway of the brain. So this could be could be done. And on the other hand, we could also use this. You know, this is basically just a kind of using this as a weapon to weaponize this, this kind of technology, which is to leverage this deep penetration to actually particularly target a region that could be, you know, in a deep brain or in a superficial brain, such as, you know, we'll be able to modulate, we'll be able to control the activity of the enemy soldiers, right? So that, that could be also a directed pulsed energy that can be leveraged to modulate the, 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 the brain activity. So apparently, you know, in order to do that, 
we want you to think of uh, in a ways that wouldn't require any kind of, you know, we wouldn't actually just have people like inject, being injected with viruses and molecules and things like that. So we have to actually find a way, you know, using some kind of, you know, that's why pulse energy is very important because pulse energy, very short period of time, you can actually deliver a lot of energy that could, that has the greatest effect based on our simulation and some experiments, that has the greatest effect of driving the changes in the membrane capacitance to give rise to some kind of newer depolarization or hyperpolarization. And to our surprise, we even found that you could actually, you know, when we, keep, when we typically think of microwave or, or, or radio waves, so, you know, these are actually extremely long wavelengths. You typically do not think you will be able to concentrate or focus it down to, let's say, if you want to target this very specific region in, in my head, in my brain here, millimeters to centimeters size scale, typically people think that's impossible. But it turns out that the brain or head is actually a cavity, and this cavity is going to have the effect of producing these hot spots that are much smaller in size than the wavelengths of the electromagnetic wave. Some kind of a steep sub-diffraction concentration effect or resolution. So then this will allow us to kind of dial in the resolution or the targeting precision of this, uh, this form of energy to particularly, you know, just uh, target a very small area in the brain throughout the entire brain. So this this is something that you know we, we are actually pretty surprised to find find this result based on based on our study. And then in terms of the um, you know this apparently is weaponized and you will actually have to also find a way to protect you know the people from this being influenced by that, right? So this is actually it's, it's not that hard. So we're actually you know during our study, during our research, especially for the radio wave and you know infrared to microwave to radio wave, we found a lot of materials just can naturally absorb or reflect these forms of energy. So we you know we, we were doing all these calculations based on Maxwell's equations. It turns out actually you can design either layer the structures as a perfect reflector of these waves, or just to find materials that can absorb all these forms of energy. So not very hard. So this is actually all the knowledge was already establishing nanophotonics. So it's interesting that actually, you know, there is this kind of size invariance from light, you know, optical wavelengths all the way to the to the radio wave. So basically what has been designed for like perfect mirrors in the optical domain can also be leveraged going all the way to the microwave and the radio wave design is reflector to pre protect the brain from being influenced. That is really fascinating um, and a little bit scary. And you're you're thinking like an intel analyst, though. Here's what we can do, but here's how it could be weaponized, and here's what the threat might look like. Um, so right. you're fitting in well with us here. Uh, my my last question here is, how do you see this technology evolving, say, in the next 10 years? Do we get to the point where we're not just manipulating parts of the brain to give feelings or to, um, you know, augment our capabilities? Are we uh, eventually going to be able to control motor functions and decision-making, things like that? Yeah, definitely. I think this is actually uh, very, very um, possible. So what do we have seen in the past, you know, let's say 10, you know, to answer this question, I would like to maybe just, you know, step back a little bit and see what has been done in the past decades. First of all, we have seen, uh, the emergence of new forms of energy that have, that have been used for neuromodulation and neural recording. For example, I've seen optogenetics, which is using light. We have seen ultrasound based neuromodulation methods. We haven't even seen the magnetic field based neuromodulation methods. And all these things were actually not there, let's say 10 years ago. Okay, and then on the other hand, we have seen actually these really advanced algorithms and all these very uh, advanced robotic systems that allow people to, let's say, read the activity in the brain and then use that to control, let's say, robotic arm, things like that, right? So this, and then we see actually this kind of, you know, now if, uh, if we combine, let's say, the technology in the algorithm side and the 
you know, the control system side. And then the other one is like material science and this mechanical engineering design and all this kind of form of energy interacting with the brain. We put them together. Now in the next decades, what I'm seeing, what, what I'm envisioning is that um, uh, on one hand, there could be new forms of modalities emerging, as I said, like microwave, radio wave, and infrared based, and even X-ray based uh, neuromodulation methods that can be possible. Because you can imagine that all these forms of energy, they actually have very deep tissue penetrating ability. Right. So, you know, if you think about what has been used for like the whole body imaging in the hospital, we have seen like X ray based CT, we have seen MRI, and these are all like the imaging methods. But what about just taking the same form of energy and sending it back to the human body? And then this could be used for like neuromodulation. This is one potential direction of improvement. On the other hand, can we actually use this less invasive methods to also read out the activity or to precisely program, uh, like say, a, a train of pulses, deliver that into the brain and modulate your activity. This requires a lot of, you know, you know, I'm seeing actually the emergence of using machine learning and using the artificial intelligence to also interpret what this would do to the brain and then to kind of, kind of like optimize the, the train of pulses that can be delivered into the brain to drive the maximum optimal effect or desirable effect in the particular region of the brain. This advances so far actually is still being just used in the deep brain stimulation that can be implanted in actual that kind of, you know realm. But this can be combined with all this free space tissue penetrant form of energy to have a almost you know completely non-invasive neural interface with the desirable effect. So I, I see this these two directions. So new forms of energy and a new methods of delivery or the new protocols of the new things that can be very exciting in the next 10 years. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's exciting right now. I, I, I can't even imagine um, some of the advancements we're going to have over the next 10 years. Um, so those are the big questions that we had for you. And I'm really excited to edit this one because I have to listen to it over and over again because it was so hard to keep up because this is so far out of our comfort zone, uh, Rachel and I with degrees in liberal arts, uh, at least I know from myself, um, just hanging on your every word just to try to make sense of it. But, you know, it's it's conversations like this with people like you that make me love my job for getting me, you know, the ability to do this type of stuff. So we have three final questions for you that are the same for all the guests that we have on the show that kind of help us get to know the guests that we've brought in here today. So the first one is, what's a trend or a technology that keeps you up in there? What are you seeing that is a little bit scary outside of what you just told us. Mm. Well, you know, when I saw this question, you know, this whole question, I was just going to say like the brain machine interface. That's kind of like the technology that keep me awake at night. But apparently, you know, I'm, I'm generally interested in a lot of different technologies. So I feel like, you know, uh, I am actually these days, you know, previously, you know, I wasn't trained as a computer scientist, but these days, especially, you know, having the benefit of, you know, being physically at Stanford, I actually am trying to catch up with all the machine learning and artificial intelligence stuff, and just to find that fascinating. So you can do a lot of cool things with that, especially, you know, when you combine that with the brain machine interface, you can do a lot of cool things. So yeah, I would say like the machine intelligence, computer vision, all these kind of things too. Very cool. Very cool. Second question, what is something about you that most people might not know? Something many people may not know is, is probably my passion for, for, for languages. So I am actually fluent in, you know, Mandarin Chinese, Cantonese, English, and Japanese. And I've also dabbed in, dabbled in learning several other languages, like between Hebrew, Spanish, French, and even uh, Esperanto. It's just a personal fascination I continue to explore. I just find it fascinating to learn different languages and learn different cultures and, you know, interacting with people. 
That's awesome. What What's your technique for learning languages? Do you use the software? Do you immerse yourself in people that speak that? What do you do? The, the, the latter. So I like hanging out with people, you know, speaking different languages. And I found that actually once you know a few different languages, then it becomes just easier and easier learning you what you want. Okay. Final question. And we save the the toughest, but the best for last. What is your favorite movie? Well, you know, at, at this point, you know, it has to be The Matrix. Yeah. So I just found that actually, you know, it's just a deeply, very deeply resonates with my personal aspirations. Um, you know, particularly fascinated by the concept of some kind of brain computer inter- interface that showcased in, in, a, in, a, in a movie where, you know, you probably remember that Neo learns like various skills, including Kung Fu, right? So this is kind of like a direct download into his brain. So, you know, this, this concept also inspired a dream of mine just to develop a real time brain computer interface like this one in the movie. Something like, you know, you, you put on a helmet or pad or, you know, wired up with wires and just sit there or take a nap and, you know, over in one hour, then your brain is rewired up, you know, they say to speak a new language, right? To have a new skill, this kind of thing, right? So I think this is, um, it's, it's, a, it's a possibility. I don't know when this will be realized, but I think it's definitely a possibility, especially leveraging some of the non-invasive technologies. I actually think, you know, maybe, you know, what the, the Neuralink by Elon Musk is probably trying to do a similar thing, you know, trying to like to deliver the, uh, the electrical stimulus into the brain via this flexible electrodes. Uh, but I think uh, one challenge there is actually it's going invasive. So my goal is still non-invasively manipulating the brain, just like, you know, what, how Neo learns this, you know, in, in a major move. That would be great. Um, I wish you the best of luck because that sounds like a monumental yeah. task, but um, it sounds like you're making progress. Um, even even the, the tiniest bit right now it could be, you know, exponentially impactful over a decade or two. Um, I did just watch the matrix over the weekend because I love that movie too. Um, and one of our previous guests, the honorable Mac Thornberry, he was on the house armed services committee. So he was a a representative in Congress. His favorite movie was the matrix as well. So this is a big hit on the convergence now. And I know Rachel is a big Keanu Reeves fan. All right, Gustang, this, this was really cool. Um, this is one of the most fascinating conversations I've had on this show, um, really in-depth in a, a, a really dense subject, but a really cool subject that has a lot of uh, potential impact, not just for the Army, you know, that's our goal here, but for society as a whole. So um, keep thank moving forward, keep making breakthroughs, and thank you so much for coming on and talking to us today. Of course. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to The Convergence. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Gusong Hong. You can keep up to date with all things MadSci by following us on social media at ArmyMadSci or visiting the blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil. Finally, if you enjoyed this podcast, please consider giving us a rating or review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you accessed it. This feedback helps improve future episodes of The Convergence and allows us to reach a bigger and broader audience.